So I heard a news story the other day that apparently 2022 was kind of a rough year for the economy and the stock market and household budgets and inflation. Have you heard, oh, you heard the same story, right? According to Fidelity Investments, 74% of workers list the cost of living and inflation as the highest stressor in their lives. While at the same time, 95% list being financially comfortable in retirement as a long-term goal. So how's that working? How are those two working, right? According to them, the average 401k account lost 21% of its value last year, while the average individual retirement account, IRA, fell by 23%. Ouch. That's rough news for people trying to save for being financially comfortable in retirement. And it shows. Again, according to Fidelity, the average retirement account balances for both 401k and IRAs fell to around 104000 in 2022. The story went on. That low level of retirement savings, it'll scare the daylights out of you, said Greg McBride, a financial analyst at bankrate.com. Americans generally, he says, are undersaved, not just for emergencies, but for retirement as well. To cope with emergencies, people oftentimes raid their retirement accounts. There was an uptick in loans and hardship withdrawals from retirement plans, McBride said. With inflation moving to 40-year highs, that has shredded a lot of household budgets. Number one stressor, and apparently it's hitting just about everyone, according to Experian, the average debt balance of consumers in the United States increased by 5.8% to $101,915 in quarter three of 2022, a $5,544 jump. Credit scores remained unchanged at an average score of around 714. So it's funny, we're up to our ears in debt, but good news, our credit's still great so we can keep borrowing. <laughs> So many of us sort of live in bondage to money and possessions. Our finances are, for many of us, the greatest source of anxiety and stress and even, I think, shame. I mean, even if we're not materialistic, so many of our lives are controlled by our materials, by our mortgages, by our responsibilities, by our debt, by our worry. There's a place to write this in your notes. It may be time for us to reorder our finances. Unfortunately, Scripture has a whole lot to say on that subject. We've been in this series after, yes, looking at what it means to be a follower of Jesus, whose lives are reordered according to the way of Jesus. And we've been looking at how we could take steps in becoming more like Christ together in community with one another. We have six continuums that we've outlined here at, at ECC that, that paint a fairly comprehensive picture of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what reordered life looks like. So far, we've looked at two of those continuums. We looked at the discover continuum, where we move from curious to in Christ, to maturing, to purposeful witness, to disciple maker. And last week, we looked at the connect continuum with Pastor Dan, where we moved from neighbor to guest, to regular attender, to friend, and to finally to family. All of these continuums lead to a point where not only are we more like Christ, but we're actually more like the people that God created us to be. Deep and authentic, life-giving, loving community that's intentionally inviting others and, and raising up others to be part of that family. It's the life God created us for. It's, it's not just a list of shoulds, but rather it, it's a realigning of our lives around the designer's specifications for our good. The life that God created us to have. 
And today we want to look at a third continuum, a third set of steps that we can take to become more like Christ. But this one's maybe a little tricky. It's a subject that's not necessarily polite to talk about. Today, today we need to talk about money. I mean, if those statistics that we saw are right, then, then we need to talk about money and our relationship to it. Let's look what scripture has to say. I invite you to turn with me uh, to the Old Testament book of Proverbs. It's right in the very middle of your Bible. We're going to look at Proverbs chapter 3 today. It's a verse that I remember memorizing as a child. It might be familiar to you. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your path. There's a lot there, right? I think it's a picture of the life God wants for us. To, to trust in God with all of our hearts and don't try to control our own lives. If we do, he will make our paths straight. He will bless and help. It's good news. Next verse. And it go, it gets even clearer. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. I mean, that, that's an even more vivid picture of the good that this could do for you. Do this not because it's your duty or because you should. Do it, and it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. This is for God's glory, but also for your and my good. So what does that look like? Well, next verse. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all you produce, or all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. We live this out, these principles out by honoring God with our wealth. But it's more than, it's more specific than that. It says with your first fruits of all your produce. What does that mean? First fruits. I mean, it's not language we use much, especially not one word together. First fruits. Microsoft, in fact, Microsoft Word kept on trying to auto fix this word every time I typed it because it's a word that doesn't exist in their library of words. But this wouldn't have been a new word. In the Old Testament, in Proverbs, it was a word that every Jewish person understood. The concept was all over the Old Testament, and it applies to so much more than produce. Every Jewish reader or hearer of this word knew exactly what it meant, according to Baker's Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology. The concept of first fruits derives from God's creation work. Because God created everything that exists, all of creation belongs to Him. Consequently, that which is first and best belongs to him and is given to him. Because of God's creative power and ownership of all, the Bible instructs believers of God to give God the best of the animal sacrifices. The land is also viewed as a gift from God, and the best of it, its first fruits, is to be given to him from the crops, the wheat harvest, the olive oil, the finest new wine, honey, sheep wool, and fruit to everything. The Old Testament makes it clear that everything that God's people have is to be viewed as from God and gained through his providence. God commands his followers then and his followers now to see their wealth as his and to use that wealth to honor him. But why Why first fruits? I mean, what matter? why does it matter what order we give it in? It's not so much about like when you give it as much as it's how much you give, right? Well, let's look at that. I think God wants first fruits. He puts this in order on purpose. There's order to his order. Giving to God our first and our best demonstrates that we honor God. There's a place to write that in your notes. We honor God when we give first. When, when guests are invited to your home for a meal, who gets to go first, take food first? 
your guests, right? As a way of honoring them. I'll oftentimes open the door for people to let them go first. It's a simple way of showing honor. No, after you. Uh, it may seem antiquated to you, but the whole idea behind ladies first is to show honor. By giving to God first, we honor him. We acknowledge that all good things come from him. He's creator, provider, sustainer. Without him, there's nothing. We honor him for who he is and what he does, but it's more than that. It's more than just a token gesture. It's actually demonstrating that we believe that he is creator, sustainer, provider, all those things. And we act on that belief. We actuate that belief. Giving first also demonstrates we trust God. We, we trust that, that we demonstrate that we believe God will continue to be who he claims to be. We risk, in a sense, by giving first. But it demonstrates trust. It's, it's an act of faith. And there's a third thing, I think, that, that we do when we give first. We demonstrate that, that we prioritize God. By giving our first and our best to God, we're saying, God, you are my top priority. You are Lord of my finances. You're more important than my needs, my wants, my debts, my obligations, any of it. Think about it this way. Many of us would never even consider not making a minimum payment on a credit card debt, right? Or a car payment or a mortgage. Most of us would never think of just not paying one of the many, many, many subscriptions we have. In fact, most of us have given our credit card numbers to these nameless, faceless organizations so that they can automatically bill us every single month for subscriptions we may not even be using. But do we prioritize God and our giving to God that way? God wants our first and our best for his glory and for our good, right? I mean, there was, there was a promise there, right? Honor the Lord with your wealth and with your first fruits of all your produce, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. I think it's interesting. And I think a picture of the heart of God and of his extravagant love that he says, your barns will have plenty. But then he goes on, he says, your wine vats, they'll be bursting. Wine in scripture is typically used as an image of joy and exuberance and abundance and festival and feast. It's a picture of the life that God wants for us. He says, your wine vats will be bursting. He wants to bless. I was a cynical child. I'm, I'm still sort of a cynical child. <laughs> and I remember hearing that verse and memorizing that verse as a kid and thinking, well, if I'm just giving to God so that he'll give me more, I mean, isn't that still just being sort of self-centered? <laughs> isn't that still just trying to like do it as a, like the wisest investment, but for my own sake? I get that. Maybe you've had that perspective. Or maybe you've heard this passage preached as sort of a health and wealth prosperity gospel. Just send us a check for $10,000 and God promises to double that for you. God will make you rich if you send us your money. Back now. Is that what this is? Is, is our relationship with God when it comes to money just transactional? I don't think so. Like I said, I think it's a picture of God's heart. He wants us to trust him and he wants to be our provider. I think that's part of why this is on this, this continuum of what it means to be a biblical disciple. That's what it looks like when it comes to our finances. Which brings us, at long last, to this actual third continuum, the give continuum. When it comes to our money, we believe that Jesus' disciples move from keep all to share some to God-first giving to becoming a tither and then becoming actually a joyful steward. 
of our resources, of our gifts, and of our money. We believe that all of us in this room or watching online or everyone everywhere all at the same time are all somewhere on the spectrum, on this continuum. Many of us have been at a place or maybe are still at a place of keep all. We need it, right? I mean, with inflation, escalating debt, debt, ever-increasing college costs. You know, it's like we're not even saving enough for retirement, and now you're just adding one more payment to my already broken household budget. Yes. <laughs> I get it. That That's why we believe this is a continuum, right? As Chris said over a couple of weeks ago, and he said a couple of times, the definition of continuum is this a continuous sequence in which adjacent elements are not perceptibly different from each other, although the extremes are quite distinct. It's steps, sometimes tiny little steps, maybe sometimes bigger steps, sometimes like barely distinguishable steps moving in the right direction toward a desired outcome. So what what would your next step be? It might be, for some of us, moving from keeping all to sharing some. Uh, it's, a, a little bit, it's a little bit like the perennial debate over whether it's better to pay off debt first or start saving for retirement first, when in fact, the reality is we can and probably should be doing the same, doing them at the same time. Anybody ever been through Financial Peace University or read anything by Dave Ramsey at all? He talks about this a lot. He talks about sort of taking these baby steps the strategic strategy of baby steps. Nobody goes from crippling debt to incredible death, uh, wealth. But we can take small steps. We can start a plan. We can intentionally begin to grow in this regard. And you can't wait to have everything perfect to start making movement. The same is true with God. You can't wait until you have all of your finances in order before you allow Christ in this area, even if that following is a baby step. I know in, in my family, we thought we gave regularly. And each year we'd get our year-end, you know, tax statement for, or giving statement for tax purposes, right? And we're always like, I'm, I'm pretty sure we gave more than this. Are you sure you have this right? Well, I'm guessing like it's true for many of you, when the offering plate would come around, often we'd have reasons why not to give, why reasons to just let it pass, right? Like, um, actually, let's wait till next week. I forgot the checkbook. Or let's wait till next week. That car repair cost way more than I thought it would. Or, or let's wait till next week. You get paid then. This litany of reasons. And you know what? Next week rarely came. For us, it actually took automating it. I mean, setting it up online so that it automatically comes directly out of our bank account at the very first of the month, the very first thing that happens. I know that some of you might say like, oh, that, that doesn't feel worshipful enough. I need to actually write the check and place it in the box. You know, awesome. If that works for you, do it. I'm real bad at that. And I get a monthly bank statement that reminds me, and that's worship through bank statements. Works just fine. Before the bills get paid, before the clothes get purchased, before the vacation is booked, we give our first and our best to God. Friends, if if Christ is Lord of your finances only when there's enough at the end of the month, only after you get that promotion, only after you've paid off that phone, then he's not really a lord of your finances. Now, I'm not patting myself on the back. I, I did this really badly for many years. I'm just saying that's what it took for us. We, we, we were share some, but that sum was still pretty small and pretty infrequent. For us, the next step, the next yes, was setting up automatic giving. And you know what? When we did that, we said, hey, if we're going to set this up online, let, let's just set it up right out of the gate that we're going to give 10%, Right? 
And then anything else we give will be over and above that, which meant we actually got to skip sort of from the, you know, share some to God first, to tither, all in the click of a button and a little bit of fear and trepidation, right? What is it? What is a tither? Let's go there. Uh, it sounds like sort of one of those like kind of ancient biblically, you know, churchy words like we now bring forth our tithes and offerings. Isn't it just another like word for offerings? Actually, no. The, the word tithe actually goes back, it's an old Jewish word, an Old Testament word that goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. Abraham gave 10% of the spoils of war to God. Jacob gave 10% when God delivered him. It was these one-time gifts. But then later, in Levitical law, it was actually written in that all Jewish people would pay 10%, would give 10% to God as an act of worship. But also, because their nation was a theocracy, where God was king, they understood it to be basically like a tax, uh, a, a, a tribute to the king because he was God. Now, the New Testament never actually lays out that Christians should give 10%. So many interpret that as, oh, well, if it doesn't say it, we don't have to give. That's the old law, which on some level, I guess, is, is, is accurate. But I think it really misses the point. I mean, Jesus affirmed the, the, the tithe multiple Times he said, you know, you 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 tithe the smallest little bit, but you miss the the weightier matters. It's not don't tithe, and instead it's tithe and. Uh, Christianity.com had a great article that said this: the standards of the New Testament are a lot stricter in some ways, or a lot loftier. Let's put it this way: so when we're required to give generously, to give sacrificially, to see relief of the poor, the support of the ministry, the spread of the gospel throughout the nations. That's big. That's bigger than 10%. I like that term loftier than the Old Testament law. It's not about meeting sort of the minimum giving requirements of the law. It's about giving generously and sacrificially to the work of God. 10% is just a starting point. And there are some for whom that is hard. That is truly sacrificial to give 10%. And there are some for whom 10% is easy. It's not that sacrificial. It's not about the amount so much as it's about the heart. And for us, starting at 10% was a demonstration that we want to align our hearts and our lives with God, to acknowledge that we're simply stewards of God's blessing, not owners. And so we did. We went right to tither. Was that scary? Yes. Did we feel like we had an extra 10% in our budget just laying around? No, because we didn't have an extra 10% in our budget laying around. We adjusted the budget to match the giving, not the other way around. That same Christianity.com article went on to say, really, to reflect upon tithing in the context of the gospel, what we begin to demonstrate or see is this, that the more the law of God is transformed by the grace of God in our lives, we move from a sense of duty to a sense of delight. Tithing is a kind of entrance level into a life of grace. The more the grace of the gospel captures my heart, the less I'm going to ask, how much do I have to give? But more... How can I live more fully, missionally, generously to the glory of God because of the lavish love, the great generosity that God lavished upon me in Jesus? Now, are Kara and I joyful stewards? Sometimes. So, sometimes we are. I'll tell you, there have absolutely been seasons and bills and unexpected expenses when we've considered dialing it back. We said, maybe we need to pause the tithing, pause the automated giving, but we didn't. 
And, and when we see those statements, when we see the ways that God is good and faithful and provides for us, the little miracles, there is joy in that. There is peace in that. There is trust in that. And in those moments, we are joyful stewards. We literally just had a conversation this week that we need to sit down again and evaluate and figure out how we can up, how we can adjust up our game when it comes to giving. That might be our next step. What's your next step? Maybe it's a baby step or maybe it's a big old step. I know a bunch of us have been going through the daily Lent readings. They're so good, and they're just chock full of really practical ways to experience growth in the season of Lent. If you haven't yet, go to emmanuel.church slash Lent, and there's an archive of all the readings today. They're so good, and they're, they're short. They're easy reads. The readings are written by our own Tina Hoffler, who by trade and by nature is an organizer, a ruthless declutterer uh, who helps people order uh, the chaos that is their lives. And so many of these Lent readings sort of have that theme about bringing order to our lives, about kind of ruthlessly going through and getting rid of the chaos and the clutter of stopping and assessing and examining our lives. She included this quote. I love it. Let me tell you what is overwhelming. A default, normal, unexamined American life. That is completely overwhelming. <laughs> She went on to invite us to break that cycle that is true for so many of us and take time to evaluate, to assess, to examine our lives. I think that's an invitation to all of us to assess and examine our lives and our giving and our finances, to put a conversation on the calendar, to sit down and really ask yourself, where are you on this continuum? Set a date to sit down and have a meeting as a couple, as a family, with your, with your parent, with a friend or financial advisor. But that's hard, Right? I mean, I think one of the reasons why we don't talk about money more is that money has so much shame attached to it. We're ashamed if we're poor. We're ashamed if we're not. We're ashamed if we've made financial mistakes. We're ashamed if we haven't given enough to God. There's so much shame around it. Friends, I want to say this, this isn't that. We don't want to shame you. There's no shame in having these conversations and examining our lives. One of our sayings here at ECC is facts are our friends. Facts are our friends. <laughs> Where are you at? We're all in the continuum somewhere. Where are you? That's just a fact. Have a conversation. Identify where you're at on the continuum and then have a conversation about where you'd like to be. Begin at the beginning and figure out what your next step might be. Statistics that I just talked about are, are true and accurate. Then there are many of us who are feeling crushed by our finances, crushed by our debt and by the shame. And we don't want to add shame to that. You're, you're dealing with bucket loads of shame already, I'm guessing. You have debt. That's a fact. In fact, our friends, we want to be a resource to you, to help you navigate through that debt, to point you to resources that could be helpful to you, to become a community that can model for one another and with one another what reordered financial lives look like. But we don't get there without, and at the same time, addressing this disorder that needs reorder. If that's where you're at, we would be honored to connect you with resources that can help you figure out your next step of beginning to reorder your debt, reorder your finances. Talk to me. Talk to one of our pastors. Reach out to Mike Lindsay, our care pastor. None of us are doing this perfectly, but I'll tell you, there are a lot of people here who've been on this journey for longer than you. It could bring wisdom from their experiences to help you in yours. Reach out. You see, I think the beauty of this continuum is that it's not like a continuum for indebted people or debt-free people. It's not for the rich or the poor. It's not a continuum that's just for adults. 
It's for adults and kids and even poor college students and teens. It's for anyone who wants to be a follower of Christ. It's for everyone who wants to be a follower of Christ. Jesus put it this way in Matthew, teaching on the subject of money, he said these words. So don't worry about these things, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek first the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously. And he'll give you everything you need. So don't worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is trouble enough for today. Now Jesus saying, don't invest in the future. Don't pay your bills. Live foolishly. Ignore responsibilities. <laughs> no, he, he's not. I think this is about order. He's saying, seek first. Above all things, seek the kingdom of God. It's about lordship. It's about order. But no, his invitation is to live a life free of worry. That is so different than the story we see in the news today. A life that trusts in God, trusts that God is good and will provide. A life whose wine vats are bursting with joy. There's a place to write this down. We, we need to reorder our finances for his glory and our good. In a world where everyone seems to be worried and fearful, news reports about inflation and retirement savings and the economy seem to go from bad to worse. What if we live differently? Imagine what impact, what good this could do for our lives if we could truly live this way. If we reordered our lives and our finances in such a way that, that we were free from the worry and the anxiety and the shame around money. Free from the bondage to stuff. The New Testament has a, has a testimony of one person who, who seemed to experience this profoundly. The Apostle Paul, writing in the book of Philippians, wrote these words. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Content in any and every situation. That's the life that God wants for us. That Jesus invites us to and strengthens us to have. It's for our good. But not just for our good, right? Not just our good. Imagine the impact, what good this could do in the lives of those around us in the world. If we could truly live this way, think of what we could do as a Christ community in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit when we pool our resources that God has entrusted to us to steward. Imagine, I mean, it could look like a movement of Christ followers who are fighting human trafficking around the globe, who are caring for victims of domestic abuse, who are fostering and adopting children in need of a home, who are working with refugees who are fleeing war and famine and violence. And even here, it could look like us sending kids to these camps and retreats. It looks like having a facility like this that we are able to use seven days a week for God's glory and for the kingdom. Imagine what we could do. We, it means us inviting new people and introducing new people to Jesus and introducing and inviting more people into this kind of life-giving, loving family of Christ followers who are helping one another to live reordered, disciple-making lives. 
I think it looks, joyful stewardship looks like children in wars who have seen some of life's worst, experiencing grace and healing, love and nurture, hope and a future at Emmanuel Children's Home. Let's watch.